millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everybody and welcome to History in Technicolor. Uh, this is David Crowther here, and this is not David Crowther. This is not David Crowther. There, uh, it's Wolf. So this week, um, I'm bringing to the table the Madness of King George. Had you seen this movie before? No, I had not. Okay, the Madness of King George. I rather garbled that. Okay, so uh, well, let me tell you why I chose it, shall I? Yes, please Good. do. Then that, that's what I should do uh, because I remember seeing it when it, it first came out, and it came into my head as some a film I'd really enjoyed. Also, because it does something I think we ignore in history quite a lot, which is how the personal situation of major figures in history affects what happens in history. Let me give you the prime example. Henry VIII. And you and Henry VIII. Oh, it's always Henry the Blind. I'm just doing it at the moment. Uh, I apologise. So Henry VIII, end of his reign, is seen as a dark, tyrannical time, suspicion and intrigue all around the court, and he's seen as sort of rather behaving very tyrannically. He was incredibly ill. He was enormously fat. Uh, he was had a seeping ulcer in his leg. He would have been affected by the his medical situation. Has to affect him. And here's a play that in effect is about that. Okay? And thirdly, because it's a play by Alan Bennett. Uh, and as you know, it is impossible not to love a play by Alan Bennett. I mean, it, it, it's also illegal, I think. Actually, I'm sure it's illegal. Well, as soon as it came up and it said, by Alan Bennett, I was like, oh, David's going to tell me why theatre's better than movies for an hour. <laughs> there is a theme that is slowly beginning to emerge, isn't there? But I do, I do have to ask, in terms of the history, how much interest do you have in this kind of Georgian period of time? Oh, this is a fantastic period of history. So this is a time that you, you're really interested in. Oh, so, But then what is not a fantastic period of I English don't history? Know. Is there one? 
Roman is Roman Britain. I'm not that interested in Roman Britain. Apart from that, everything's fantastic. So, but, but yeah, amazing period in, in English and British history. Written, the play was written in 1991, uh, and he, the film shares some of the same actors. So uh, Julian Wadham, who I think is Pitt, if I'm right, and of course Nigel Hawthorne. The director who directs the film is really not a film director. I mean, obviously, I'm going to get shouted at for that because he does direct other films. But he's known for his opera, and he's known for his plays, and his name is Nicholas Hitner. So I thought it was quite interesting who they cho- chose, and obviously Alan and Nicholas get on. The film came out in 1994. Screenplay was written by Alan Bennett, the writer of the play. So it's not like a Zimmerman Bolt situation going on here. The cast is kind of like, yet again, another roll call of, of English greats. Nigel Hawthorne. Ian Holm. <laughs> Ian Holm. Who is it? I mean, I, I know that Bilbo Baggins is in the film. But who's this Ian Holm? Oh, sorry. I forgot <laughs> to use his Christian name. Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo Baggins, as he's known. Alan Merriam, Julian Wadham again. Um, that bloke who's in um, the best film of all time, otherwise known as Notting Hill. He's the timeout guy who meets when Hugh is no interviewing Julia about. Roberts. He's the timeout guy. His name is... Julian behind something. Did you did you notice as well that Rupert Everett and is that his brother? Rupert Everett. The other guy who's playing is that he's playing his brother, right? No, that's Julian Rind Watson. Okay. The two of them are both in Stardust together is as that right? well. Gosh. They're both brothers in Isn't that. Nice Rupert Everett, Rupert Graves, you know, just a whole load of really good uh, British actors, Amanda Donahoe, you know. Uh, it was nominated for a few Oscars, got beaten and everything by Forrest Gump. That's my American accent, Forrest Gump. Please never do that again. Fair enough. Um, and I only won one on sound. And then that's fair enough, Forrest Gump. Obviously, but Did it, it win really... a load of BAFTAs, though? Because that's the kind of thing that won happen. a load of BAFTAs, yeah. yeah. One Wins load of all BAFTAs. the BAFTAs. Yeah. They ignore Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, Indeed. Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. They're like, what are these dumb <laughs> things? But we've got yeah. uh, King and George. And everybody does the same. absolutely right. How much I... did you think about Blackadder while you were watching this as well? Do you know, that's another thing. I don't know where I, I was going to bring that up later, but it's got to be made on Blackadder, hasn't it? They, they cannot have ignored Blackadder, especially... Rupert Everett, yes, and the 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 Prince character. I mean, that's just you know. Anyway, so what is it about? Uh, that's a rhetorical question, by the way. I don't want you to answer that. It's about the Regency crisis of seventeen eighty eight to seventeen eighty nine, which is a lovely phrase. Regency crisis, uh, Regency mild concern might be a better phrase for it because really it isn't much of a crisis. Um, so the story is that George III has been on the throne for a long time uh, and he suffers an attack of madness. Uh, these days, there's kind of think it's porphyria, but actually that's been challenged. Nobody really knows. Uh, essentially, he has an attack of madness. His unscrupulous son, George, who's the heir to the throne and is very impatient to get on the throne, teams up with the dastardly politician Charles Fox. I'm presenting this as the way the film presents it. Try and put George away... George III away, so that his son can take over the country. Fortunately, George recovers just in time, just in the nick of time. And only does he recover in time because there's a flock of sheep that manages to get out of the way sufficiently quickly in order for somebody to come back and vote at the right time. It's not really about the Regency crisis. That is the canvas on which it is drawn. And I thought we ought to ask this question every time we review a film is, what is the film really about? So Master and Commander, as you know, is not about a boat chasing another boat and trying to kill it. Is it about it is about the love of two men for each other, isn't it? You know, it's not about what it says it's about, it's about something else. 
Yes. It's about male companionship. <laughs> like almost all kind of art is. Indeed. Indeed. Exactly right, yeah. So what is this film really about? And actually, it's actually a film about exactly what it says on the tin. It is about George III and his madness. So the canvas on which is written, in a way, is just there to give some drama to help you lead you into that story in kind of the way I see it. And also a chance for a giggle. It's also very King Lear-ish. So there's definite, very conscious links to King Lear. Um, and in that fact, we even one, one stage they sit in the grounds and they recite, they're reciting King Lear, they're acting out King Lear. You know, just, just in case you missed it, you know, they hold you down for a couple of minutes and give you a good smack over the head with it. So anyway, that's... King Lear's a pretty big text as well. That King hurt. Lear's a pretty big text, yeah. Obviously they don't do it all. So that's what it's about. First of all, just the high-level question... What did you think of the movie? Did you did you enjoy the movie or not? Well, we'll go into it. I I did enjoy it, but I found it immensely troubling. Right. Okay. I troubling. can I can understand it as a as a black comedy. Right. But the oh, I don't think a black comedy is the right phrase. But anyway, carry on. Okay. It's a really interesting phrase well, actually. The, the only reason being that the issue of mental health, yeah, and the way that it's being dealt with in the movie, while humorous, is troubling. Okay, so I'm going to argue on that point. That's a fascinating point. I think there is a very significant difference between black comedy, which, in my view, is... So is this a farce? No. Well, can I finish the <laughs> sentence? Okay, continue. <laughs> Sorry, I was just being... Um, uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, so... You I were telling me I was wrong. That's what you <laughs> yes, were doing. You were I telling me I was wrong. Yes, you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> okay. Evidence, so, please. Uh, yes, evidence, please. So... I would argue that there is a significant difference between black comedy, which is something like In Bruges, where the violence is ramped up to 95 and it's clearly, in a sense, thereby trivialised. You don't see it as real because it is so over outrageously done. And this, where I think Alan Bennett does the thing that Alan Bennett does, and which is so terribly English about him, he uses humour to do two things. He uses humour to take the edge off the violence or the trouble, the troublingness and also to lead you into it, to allow you to cope with it and internalising. I know this sounds a bit complicated. The horrend, but let me explain. The bit where King George is strapped into a chair yes. because he is mad. Yes. Uh, and it obviously a completely inhumane way of treating it these days, but then was thought to be the right way, is a hideously painful scene. Yes. Okay? The humour that surrounds it is to help you deal with that. It's to help you understand it. Otherwise, it's just too unbearable. And you just reject it. That is my argument. I found that scene not funny. It's not supposed to be funny. I know, but you said that the humour around it. Do you, you don't mean in the... In the, in in the scene. I mean surrounding around... Bits. Okay, it's fine. Surround, in, in other bits of the, of the movie. That scene is not remotely funny. But then it moves on to a bit where there is humour. So the whole George character is, you know, ludicrously funny. It's a very English way of dealing with, um, with, with grief and, and pain and trouble that it lets you off the hook. By then allowing you to laugh at things. And you either view that negatively and think, oh, that's, you know, the bloody English. They can never view things full on. They always have to, you know, humour is just an escape and a way of avoiding reality. Or you say, actually, that allows us to cope with these very painful things. I do agree, and I do think it works. But to say that I enjoyed the movie would be a lie because it's just a little bit too traumatic for me. 
to to see this even when it's being funny you the shroud of pain and misery is so present in every scene for me personally that and especially with the ending also we can go through but i find it hard to laugh and joke and and think oh this is i'm having a good time because i'm obviously questioning all of the motives of everybody in the movie yep. all the time the, especially everything medical related oh, that medical is so and well done it's definitely funny and some of the jokes are incredible especially when they're not really delivered as jokes the language is just so smart and witty yeah um, the language is so just... i do see all of that but i kind of thought when i watched when the movie started that it would be a movie that people watch quite regularly that's a, like a comforting place to go mm. that's, that, but it's really more traumatic than I anticipated. Yeah, right. I mean, and it certainly is traumatic. That moment, I mean, part of it expects that since this is about a, you know, incredibly privileged person, a king, that you're just going to find all that. And that court thing is all just so absurd. And it's played up to be absurd that you're going to, it's going to lessen your sympathy with him as a character. And that does not happen at all. The look in his eyes when you realise that this man who has been used to being listened to, being deferred to, as Bilbo actually says, as the Doctor actually says, he's going to be strapped in to a chair and a leather gag is going to be tied around his mouth and he's going to be half naked when this happens. The look in his eyes, Nigel Hawthorne is a genius. And this is the guy who I'd, I'd only seen doing, you know... Yes, Minister and Yes, Prime yes. Minister, playing Humphrey Appleton, this absurdly over-complicated, you know, unemotional English Mandarin. And here he is doing this astoundingly complex, subtle, nuanced performance, which has both humour and, you know... And what's, what's brilliant about the performance is also how obviously over the top it is, but he still delivers all of that yeah. in such an exuberant way. I think that is, I think for a little, there's a little edge of that which I think he just overdoes it a little bit. You know, he makes yes. the character so eccentric. You know, even when he's not mad, um, that you kind of think, really, you know. I mean, so it's a little bit like Jack Torrance in The Shining, where you think he's mad the whole movie, yeah, even before he gets to the hotel. Pretty close to the line, isn't he? And I must admit that I thought, well, I think it might have been better if he turned it down a bit. But I assume that's because he's just making fun of the entire establishment and uh, I think he's Regency trying... in general. Well, it's interesting. We'll come to the history a bit, and I'll explain. I think some of the reasons why. And that's, that's setting made, but... up the societal kind of yeah satire that's going on there. Maybe, but I think also George Third was a, an eccentric character. Um, and what it shows, and I say historically, I think it's redressing some of the negativity that's always been around George Third as well, but I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, so, I mean, I think what I was saying, it's like the History Boys, you know, it's got the History Boys, and a Bennett film, and also, yep, yep. has got, I think, that same combination of pathos, uh, real emotion, mixed in with humour, or the lady in the van, which is a, I mean, that's a desperate story. Strip away the humour. That is a desperate story about a lady who's abandoned by society and has had a terrible thing to undone her past and lives in a van because she can't bear to face that reality. I mean, and yet we laugh with it. We take it all the way through because he lets us. The humour helps us deal with the pain. Okay, David, do you like Alan Bennett? <laughs> He's a god. He is. A god. And he is the most English person I have ever, ever um, seen right play. 
Okay, yes, yeah, so I was going to say. The positive bits of English. Okay, so that's that. Uh, so, um, I thought I was reflecting, I'd watched this at the same time as Geronimo, and I was reflecting how much easier it was to make a film where you take a specific slice. So George III has a long history of going up to that point in 1788. For example, he'd already done this thing where he's a young man and politically he, he makes some foolish moves. Uh, he puts his mate, the Earl of Butte, in as a minister, despite the fact he's got no support in Parliament, and it's a mockery, the whole thing's a mockery, so, which is where we get the expression, putting the butte in. That entire sentence was done just so that I could crack that joke. Um, but I had never even heard the phrase before. Putting the so... boot in. You know the phrase, putting the boot oh, in. Oh, right, but, it, the, but it's a joke. Put it, the, the Earl of Butte, butte putting the butte in. I mean, it was really laboured, wasn't it? Because I just formally apologise, but you know, hey... You've got to work at a joke sometimes. Keep it up, David. <laughs> so um, it's really useful that he... It's really helpful dramatically to take a, an event in that person's life or a short period rather than all the stuff going up and all the stuff... Are, it works dramatically because it's just a slice of life, basically. Yeah, and also, which is what's great about this, is he clearly gives you all the setup you need in the first five, ten minutes. Yeah. I don't need... As much as I would like to, I don't need to know anything that's come prior. Yeah. I just need to know who they are and how it's operating. You get that in the first five or ten minutes. Yeah. So then, when he changes, it's evident. Yeah. And then you just watch the consequences. Yeah, absolutely. The characters are, are brilliant in a sense. Um, it's, very, it's a bit like a Man for All Seasons discussion in the sense that you kind of know you're watching acting, you know, with a capital A. And there's a good thing and a bad in that in the sense that it's brilliant. These people, you can see they're loving it, they do a brilliant job of describing their characters, but also you kind of know that they're sort of doing it. Or I'm sitting there thinking, hey, this is great acting, isn't it? And there's got to be something wrong but, with that in a but way. But there is a difference, and this movie, more than A Man for All Seasons, uses the awareness of its sets, its uh, and the cinematography in, in particular. They like to... So, for example, every, you, I love the shots where you get the whole room and uh, it's from straight ahead, and there's a two of them sat in the chairs, and yes. everyone behind them. And they just let the scene, they let the image tell you everything you need to know. And then you obviously get the quite kinetic camera movements when he's being um, apprehended or on some of the fight scenes. They're thinking about how they want to move the camera to tell the story in the way that they want to. And I just think that's just something that's not being done in the, you know, a matter yes, of all season. Very static, so, so they are aware of how they're using it, and it's not, it, it doesn't, you can tell it's a play, but... I was trying to imagine what it would look like on the stage because that's not evident from the film. I think that's a really good point, yes. Yeah, clever, aren't you? Um, yes, in A Man for All Seasons, you can see, I know how this would be staged. In this film, Madness and George, you think, oh, God, I wonder how they did that on the stage. That would have been tricky. Um, and yes, you're right, the bit where you've got the, the fantastically funny bit where you've got the guys with the silver bells yeah. <laughs> coming and it's brilliant and it, as you say you've got it straight on you're, they're the only two people seated George and his wife everybody else in the court has to stand up including the pregnant but women no, who the have been best, playing it for hours the scene when they're at the very beginning where they're walking and talking which has been done so many times brilliantly I think of Brazil uh, I think of various comedy sketch shows when they're walking and the camera is obviously going behind them and everyone's following and they're, they're yelling all their orders and then the camera's in front of them and you get all the energy the pace the excitement mm. everything is being happened by the way that they film the story as well right 
Uh, going back, I, I absolutely agree. Going back to the Silver Bells thing. So there they all are. They're all sitting. Oh, they're I'm all sorry. deadly, deadly dull. You know, they just want to die and they just want to sit down. And then they do it again. And the, I mean, it's just so funny watching people play music with Silver Bells. Yes, it is. Am I shallow? No, no, it, it was very, it was very funny. It was very funny. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So you had a really good film point, and I had a trivial thing about watching Silver Bells. Anyway, so some other great performances. Rupert Everett, and this is what I mean. Actually, Rupert Everett is a good example. Rupert Everett as the evil prince. Rupert, what are you doing? <laughs> Rupert, Rupert. <laughs> he is. He is just brilliantly, brilliantly funny. He's a cardboard cutout. You know, he's yes. there, he's a comic character, he's not a fully rounded figure. He's incredibly good at it and he's very funnily drawn. But that's, I think, what I'm saying. With the exception, probably, of Mr. King, the characters tend to be a little bit cardboard. They do a role and that's fine. Um, and some of the inaccuracy comes out in that, actually, I'll talk about later. But this is where I think that Ian Holm stands out, why I shouted him. He's so good in the movie. Oh, I'm going to argue with you about that. Really? Okay. I, you do what you need to do, and then bring this not, back to me. It's not Bilbo's fault. Um, no, I think his performance is great. But I don't... It's not his performance that's a problem. I don't understand his character in the movie. So, in a way, what you get... Ian Holm kind of does... What's the name of the chap in Chariots? You know, the mentor, the coach. Who takes oh, I don't hands. know. Anyway. Do you know the film? That yes, character? yes. So, but he's kind of a mentor... Uh, an oracle type figure who kind of knows more than everybody else and he's a bit like that in this film he's the doctor and you go away with the impression that he's the all-seeing or knowing one because otherwise the doctors are played for laughs brilliantly played for laughs but he isn't and yet you know that what he's doing is garbage and brutal inhumane garbage to boot that has no impact on his recovery and yet there's all this thing about at the end, him leaving, you know, accepting looks from George. Yes, you've... OK, it was brutal, but you did the right thing, sort of thing. I didn't think he received a look. I thought he disappeared in the crowd into uh, obscurity. Right. I mean, I suppose that's true. They have he no does. idea he has this... He argues, I know, have no idea you have a hospital. All the other doctors see him as inferior because um, they never recognised him and nobody in the public knows that he went to this doctor... Uh, and the king is never going to accept that he was ever ill. Essentially, if this man has done any good, it will be erased anyway. Right. He'll never be remembered for anything. And he disappears off into the crowd thinking he's done a good job. I do know what you're saying, um, and I do agree that it is weird, and I wonder if there's a, more of a general criticism about um, medical knowledge yeah. at the time. Because I saw him as a, a bad character for a long time. Right. And I saw him... I didn't see... I saw him represented as a character who had a firm idea, provides sort of moral and firm leadership and comes out at the end as having as achieved the objective and being a sort of... And, of course, he wasn't. I, I found it ambiguous. The impo- I think, yes, I do know what you mean. It's interesting that he is the only one who represents average Joe. Mm. He represents the public. He represents perhaps people mm. who have genuine educations mm. um, yes. rather than, like, purchased ones. Indeed, yeah. And... He's the one who breaks all the rules. Yes. And they're like, Wait, are you, is he actually looking at the king? I can't yeah. believe this. Yes, That's indeed, not yeah. protocol. Yeah. No, everybody else is too trapped in their yes. lunatic indeed, asylum yeah. that they're living in. Yeah. Uh, and, and all the rules that they have and the, and the procedures that they have to go by. And he seems to be the only one who's from the outside. Mm. And as such, he seems to be given that 
his credence is the fact that he's not part of the yeah. royalty and the hierarchy. Absolutely. And I think that gets played a lot, that he's the guy who breaks the rules and therefore good, but he does these things which we know to be ludicrous. So, just ambiguous. Otherwise, the medical lot are played beautifully for love. So I, I wrote down a couple of lives as I was watching. So you've got these doctors, there's hundreds of them, they no idea what they're doing. Some of them are desperate to look at poo. Others, and another point, they... The persistent burn. excellence of the stool... <laughs> That was the line, you stole my line. It's such a fantastic. And you got this very world worried Jeffrey Palmer, who was born. I walked past him in the street weary. once. Did you? Oh, he was, he's so good and he's so perfect. He's world weary. And he says, The continuing excellence of the stool has been one of the most tiresome aspects of this case. Yes. <laughs> because one of the doctors is always saying, The stool looks excellent. And he says, Meanwhile, George is as mad as a, you know, mad as a March hare. Yeah, and then it's, there's the other guy who says, um, having blue water has never meant anything. <laughs> yes, so, right, yeah. the, but then what's absurd is obviously at the end they put the credits and they say, "Oh, we believe because of the colour of his water." Yeah, yeah. But now we know yeah, yeah. this is what he had. That's right. I'm like, it was there all along. That one MAGA who was obsessed with poo was the only one who could see the truth. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit, um, it's a bit dishonest, isn't it? Because of course, you know, medical theory couldn't be any better than it could be given the state of science. But nonetheless, they play it beautifully for a laugh. Just another couple of funny things, and then we'll move on to the historical accuracy. There's some just lovely lines of language. Alan Bennett, obviously, our language is his tool. Um, smile and wave, that's what you've played for. It's a lovely line delivered by the Queen to, um, to Rupert. The tiresomeness of the court and all the iron that goes on with Rupert Everett is brilliant and really funnily done. There's a lovely comment about the evil Prince George, who obviously is a lazy good-for-nothing, and uh, he says... Oh, takes character to withstand the rigours of indolence. That's just a lovely line. Also, anyway, I love I mean, that Rupert you know. Everett is regularly referred to as the fat one. Yeah, he's <laughs> as thin as a rake. Wish I was that fat. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, the fat one. <laughs> so, I loved it for... Did, did you always love it? I loved it at the time. Did you see the film before you saw the play? I've never seen the You've play. You've never seen the play. Again, Have you read I the play? Failed. I haven't even read the play, which okay. you know, we're letting ourselves I thought down. you liked theatre, David. I do, and yet I've never seen any of these plays. I'd like to formally apologise. Well, on the record, proof yeah. that David is wrong. <laughs> I loved it a little bit less second time around than first time around, because I found it a bit more, the situation a little more trivial, I think. Okay. And I'll explain that when we get to the historical accuracy, which is... Is this because your historical knowledge has grown Yeah, I know a lot 94. more about uh, the situation then. Um, so there are some things about the historical accuracy I kind of objected to, and that got in the way just a little bit. Also, maybe the movie, I would argue, is a, is so over the top that once you've kind of seen it once, it's a little bit... Yeah. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't shock you. Well, it doesn't shock you in the same way. Um, and I remember... The thing I always remembered was they have this very nice conceit, which I haven't found out is right or not, that does not mention anywhere, where they call each other Mr and Mrs King, which is cute, you know, and it's rather nice. And they did clearly have a very good relationship, him and his wife. And the bit where she has to leave him is very affecting. And for some reason, I sort of may built that up a lot in my mind. Therefore, when I watched it a second time, read it wasn't quite as, you know, as it was. For me, the, really. the key scene I remember is just from the image-wise, is the one of him outside in the snow, collapsing yes. against the wall, crying, and as it pans back out, everybody's walking away from him. Yeah. Because they don't know how it's to deal really with it. It's interesting, this. yeah. They don't know how to comprehend uh, a fallible monarch. Yes. And deal and with truly, Yes, indeed. Because before, they would always just... 
Yeah. The other thing that has to be mentioned, of course, is that the music, I mean, obviously, it's really easy. Zadok is all over the place. And you cannot have a bad movie which has Zadok in it. Who's Zadok? Okay, so Zadok, the priest, just happened to have it on the computer here ready for you, is a piece of music composed by Handel, who's obviously an Englishman. You know, the fact that he was German, came from Germany, spoke German, all the rest of it. Doesn't get out of the way. We're good in England at claiming our folks. Anyway, so Handel wrote it for a coronation piece of music. So you've got to have this piece of music that has the, the monarch walking all the way through, very, very slowly through the church, okay? So this is what this bit is. And then she, you know, they turn to the crowd and oh, everything goes crazy. So I want you to use this the next time you're going for a job interview or something, okay? You're walking along, okay? You're walking along. So I walk straight into my job interview, listening to music with my headphones. No, no, this is in your head. Oh, you I see. Play it in your head. You can listen to music in your head as you're, you're walking along, okay? And this will get you in the right frame of mind to win that interview, okay? And this led you all the way to this shed. Or... <laughs> <laughs> That's quite rude. Uh, so, <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah. If it is, I apologise. <laughs> okay, so you're going to be playing this in your head. It's making you feel good, okay? It's making you feel calm. Yeah? Are you feeling good about this? And then get really pumped. And you're going to, uh, you're going to think, you're going to think about you coming up to the room. You know, you're going to go into the uh, into the hall to to meet your folks. And when you when you go when you open the door and you go in. That is, is, this, is this where think. I get tied up to the chair and gagged and given? So this is where tape. he gets tied up to the, and the, the, it just hits you straight in the eyes. When you're in a job interview, this is what you know they're feeling, okay, about what you're going to say. It's an astounding piece of music. I love this piece of music more than it's, life it's, it's important that the movie played, is brilliant. It's played it's in used brilliant twice, music. right? Yeah, indeed. At two key moments. Yeah, so obviously absolutely. Oppose each other. So basically you enjoyed it by the sound of things. I did. I, so I have interests in the history. I want to see kind of how this plays out. So okay. that's kind of what I want to ask you about. But yeah, I thought it was thought it was enjoyable, but I really found it troubling enough that it's not enjoyable yeah. half the time. But it impressed you. You thought it was a movie that you enjoyed. You saw... It's clearly really well written. Right. Like, there's there's no question about that. And I think it's it's it doesn't really suffer from a lot of the drawbacks. And it seems to be, you know, made really well. The performance is incredible. Mm. Nigel Hawthorne in particular is really, really good. The only thing is, obviously, I have no context for what happens okay. afterwards. Right. It's very interesting because George III uh, acquires a terrible reputation. He acquires a terrible reputation in America almost immediately after the revolution. Of course. Because he is painted as a tyrant. And that's very clever, actually, because what the American historians do and American politicians do is they personalise the crisis and they demonise George III. It's much more easy, easy to do it that way. And there is an element, an, a kernel of truth in that, in the sense that George III was very upset about losing the colonies, very determined that they shouldn't, that they were colonies. All through the film that gets referred to, um, he can't accept it. The movie shows that to us in this, at the beginning. Yes. Prior to him being mad... He seems yes. completely he's obsessed off the wall. It. Absolutely. He's obsessed by it. And Pitt keeps having to tell him, this is America now. The things have moved on. Pitt can move on because he's a politician. George can't because he's personally involved. These were his lands. So there's a little bit of, there's a kernel of truth. But of course, the argument was with Parliament, between America and Parliament. Parliament is where power resides by this time, not with George III. So the demonisation of George III is really pretty unfair. In England and in in Britain, he is demonised because he's very against the emancipation of 
the Catholics, so liberals hate him for that. So he gets demonised. And this film does a great job of rehabilitating him, showing for George for what he really is and all his goodness bad. It downplays his bad a little bit. But essentially, it shows a king who is energetic, who's incredibly conscientious. And George said was incredibly conscientious, very aware of his responsibilities and his status. That is what drives him as a character. So the, the Catholic emancipation issue, he resists that and he should be criticised for that in a sense, certainly in modern terms. But as he sees it, it's directly against his coronation oath. And he takes that oath very seriously. And it's the same with the American colonists. These are his responsibilities. And if they go, he has failed. And he, t- he takes it personally. He's very interested in science and culture. He's a very family man, a very uxorious man. The scene at the end, you know, where they're all waving, that's very true to history. But what George does is accepts that through his reign, that the power of the monarchy is reducing, that that is not where the power lies anymore, and that the monarchy needs to find a new role. And that he says that line, they should see that we're happy. Absolutely. It, the monarchy becomes a model, as it were. And that's very different from in the early days when, as I say, he put the butte in, where he's trying to control political events, where in actual fact that role of the monarch is now gone. And he learns to accept that and to find a new role for the monarchy, which Queen Victoria will follow. You know, that's what it becomes, a domestic monarchy. So the film does a great job, I think, of redressing that basic imbalance. It could be more honest about his family relationship. You know, the evil prince thing. In many ways, George IV, the regent, was a bit of a, a bit of a waster. Fat boy? <laughs> and he does become extremely podgy. But the family life's pretty brutal. So there's some... Um, quotes from the princesses that Prince Frederick, who's the useless younger one, uh, was, quote, held by their tutors to be flogged like dogs with a long whip. That's what his sister says she saw. The princesses are all kept there all their lives because Mr. and Mrs. King don't want them to, to leave. And so they're sort of captured in a this aspect, incredibly dull, pointless life. So George is very, very Martinet in terms of parenthood so a lot of the blame is to him as well as George the biggest one that got me a bit cross was in order for the drama to move forward you have to have good good guys and bad guys and of course it's not like that in politics Pitt is I think a good guy he's presented as a very dull man he probably was but he's deeply for a conservative he's deeply liberal he works very hard to try and resolve the irish problem and is stopped in doing what he wants to do he wants to offer catholic emancipation and is stopped in what he wants to do so he could have been but still his character is reasonably positively presented charles james fox is a a, a real radical he's pushing down for abolition of the slave trade for example and he's presented as an evil not evil exactly but a amoral wheeler dealery kind of figure in order for him and the prince to be the bad guys. It's a little bit annoying because in actual fact, Charles James Fox is not really that character, although he is a a good manager of Parliament and all the rest of it, and Parliament is very much a collection of vested interests. That kind of venality is well portrayed. But there's a little bit of uh, messing around there in order to make the drama work better. That's it, really. And there are other few things. So it's Pitt that controls access to the king. It's not the prince. So the prince doesn't cannot deny Mrs. King access to Mr. King. It's Pitt who actually does that. So little things like the curate, you know, when he marries the prince secretly and says, oh, I only got £10. Actually, he got 500 quid, which is 
a lot of money. A lot of money. In those days, yeah. So it's not word perfect, but you can in all cases understand why he's done it in order to move the drama. So then, in terms of his kind of medical breakdown... Yeah. Is that accurate? I think it is. What I mean, all those so they would they would blister absolutely. They, they would, would admire restri- the stool. They would admire the stool. Uh, they would restrain him. And the doctor was employed. And then he did improve after. And a then he improves. Period of and time. actually, for quite a long time. And I think it's not until. But you do then get a regency. So I think it's around about eighteen twelve, somewhere around that. Um, I may have got that wrong, but at some point you do then get a regency, and George IV gets his turn. But it's another fifteen more years actually that's almost 20 years uh, and then he lives for a little while and he dies in 1820 i'm assuming the public is not aware that he is ill the public must have been aware because there is the regency crisis you know they have to have this vote in parliament and that's accurate in the sense that a bill gets gets proposed but there isn't any of that drama around it you know there are no sheep involved here does parliament have so much influence at this point that essentially it doesn't matter it's like he's just gone on a long holiday this but- is i think part of the thing that the film shows actually and that the historically the relationship between parliament and monarchy has moved on so if the government would change, then you would have to have a regent to, to legally appoint that government and so on and so forth. So it would become a problem. But it's more a procedural issue than anything else. So what would you rank it from an accuracy perspective? So I'd go, I was thinking of going for an eight. Do you see how the way I prepared that? Yes. Yeah, so you asked me the question, I answered straight away because, you know, yep. I thought about it. Well, I'm glad to see that, again, <laughs> I am wrong. So um, I'm being slightly... No, 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 that's fine. So eight, I would agree. Cause yeah. And in fairness, in these issues, I defer to you. All right, excellent. Um, I, have no, I, I don't know the context, so yes, I mean, that seems yeah. reasonable. In terms of quality of film? It's tough. Everything about it is so good that I want to say an eight, but I equally know that I'm probably not going to rewatch it for a very long time, which makes me want to kind of draw back a little bit and make it lower. But I'll say eight. Okay, so you don't go seven. No, I'll go, I'll go eight. So, eight it is. Okay, good, good. So, before we go, let's... Do that weird thing of going back in time, and there will be a debate now about Geronimo. Hello, everyone. Well, this is David. Uh, although you think it's David, it is, in fact, Wolf's words in David's mouth, coming out of David's mouth, actually. So just so you know. Anyway, last episode, we discussed Walter Hill's Geronimo, an American legend, and feedback about the film has been fascinating. Where do numbers stand on the Facebook poll, you ask? Well, Five, just five people loved it. Six of you thought it was, mm, was all right. And 16 didn't like it at all. And then the remaining 95 of you hadn't seen it. Of those who hadn't seen it, the divide between interested to see and not interested to see anyway is almost exactly 50-50. So it's clear not many people have seen the film and maybe, just possibly perhaps, that's why it didn't make much money. The reasons for disinterest generally stem from the fact that it's a Western And most specifically, it handles a very delicate part of this history in a way that a lot of people did not like or want, as well as the fact that we were perhaps less enthusiastic about it as a film. You all seem to agree, though, that Wes Studi is a phenomenal actor, with many citing Last of the Mohicans as his crowning glory. Jacob did love the movie, but wished the history had been more accurate and revolved around Geronimo a bit more. A lot of you actually highlighted the fact that there's a wealth of incredible stories about the First Nations and the indigenous people of the United States and seemed a bit frustrated that these stories have to be altered or tailored to express the white settler's perspective over the real story. Others, like Kristen, tend to stay away from films that depict the mistreatment of Native Americans and find cinema's approach to this period of history to be unenjoyable and sometimes even offensive in its representations. 
Peter, in particular, did not hold back about the cringe-worthy nature of the film and its poor treatment of history. Especially irritating was the white man who understands the Native American storyline and how it puts all the sympathy on the side of the oppressor. Overall, this is all in line with our discussion points on the episode and the real divide seems to be whether the film is well-intentioned or deliberately problematic. If this topic has interested you generally, Wolf has recently watched a 2017 film called Hostiles that stars Wes Studi and Christian Bale and he would recommend it to anyone who is a fan of westerns or is interested in seeing a modern example of how cinema's approach to Native Americans, specifically in the western genre, has changed or indeed not. It follows a reluctant and prejudiced army captain that has to escort a Cayenne chief and his family from the reservations they've been prisoners on across a dangerous landscape and back to their homeland in Montana. Just to add my hapeth to what Wolf has said, that's me, David, I'm back now. The big thing is that we also appear to have conclusively nailed the critical point about this film, which is that A, yes, yelling Geronimo when he jump or go down a slide or something appears to be a global habit, and B, this appears to come from paratroopers jumping, supported by footage from the film Hot Shots. Tell me I'm not shallow. Oh, and very quickly, on Elizabeth, by the way, which was, you know, a freebie on the other one, so it doesn't really count, but we all had a good chat on that as well, and there was a lot of love for the film. I have to say, though, that I came out of the chat thinking I'd been too positive and that actually Elizabeth was more historically inaccurate than our hit score of six would suggest. David made the point that the music was not from the period, for example, and Cathy said that Mary of Guise was a bit laughable. And that's a good point, you know, licking the cutler and all that. And Walsingham was far from accurately portrayed as well, however fun a character he was. So, yeah, maybe not as bad as Braveheart, but should have scored it down a bit more, maybe. Tim managed to get IPA into the discussion, which was impressive and always good. Nicole, I think, spoke for all of us when she said that Kate was triff. And Holly and I, at least, had a great time reminiscing about the Mulfonte, the full Monty, though outrageously, Rob thought Titanic's greatest crime was the sinking of LA Confidential at the Oscars. There's an interesting point for discussion, Titanic's greatest crime. Anyway, Rob also made the bold assertion wait for it, that LA Confidential was Russell Crowe's finest film. Discuss. Okay, that's it. So, But why, why would you recommend this movie? I would recommend it for so many reasons. It's incredibly funny. It's beautifully written. It's gorgeously shot, actually. We haven't talked about that, all the costumes and all the rest of it. And yet it is important in the sense that you see genuine and understand genuine suffering of human beings and it shows you into the how awful that would be you know it's not trivial but and this is what i think is actually particularly good is that while humanizing the king it also really makes it clear that he is a king and that there should a lot of the criticisms we should have of the monarchy in general are still present throughout yes indeed there's we didn't mention that there's a there's a nice little it's a little smidge of anti-monarchism at the end of it which just shows up how absurd this whole world is. Um, you know, so the people who have been the nicest to him throughout the whole period um, are chucked out completely callously at the end of it because they've seen things about a king that nobody should see and so they're just discarded. All the absurd protocol, which is just ridiculous. So there is a nice modern smidge of anti-monarchism if that's what you want to follow through. Yeah, I don't think it's that reverential. Great. Okay. Well, I think we both enjoyed that. I certainly did. Because I like uh, the sound of my own voice. Always have done. That's why I do podcasts. Really. Should we stop now? 
Yep. <laughs> okay, anyway, thank you, David. Are you not entertained? Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.